For six years, from 1960 to 1966, Carlos Castaneda served as an apprentice to a Yaqui Indian brujo or sorcerer named Don Juan. His experiences with Don Juan led him into a strange world of shamanistic lore and psychedelic experience and adventures in what Mr. Castaneda calls states of non-ordinary reality. Mr. Castaneda is with us here at KPFA today and has agreed to discuss the book and his experiences with Don Juan. Don Juan is a very sophisticated thinker. It's not easy to come to grips with him. You see, I had tried various times, you know, to to sort of wrestle with him intellectually, and he always comes the, the victor, you know. He's very artful. And he posed once the idea to me that the whole, the totality of the universe is it's just perception. And that's how we perceive things. And there are no facts, only interpretations. I'm nearly quoting him, see, paraphrasing him as yes. well as I can. Perhaps he's right in that sense. The facts are nothing else but interpretations that our brain makes of stimuli. So if that's such, whatever I felt was, of course, the important thing. This is Trickster, The Many Lives of Carlos Castaneda. Chapter 4, Path with Heart. By the mid-60s, Castaneda's academic path seemed to be on a dead-end course. He'd all but officially dropped out of the grad program at UCLA. I was wondering why he was hanging on there, because I didn't think he was a particularly good student. Friend and classmate, Lyle Stedman. He wasn't getting anywhere. You know, he was just wasting time or something. I don't know what he was doing, but uh, he was progressing. Barely scraping by financially, Castaneda was working part-time driving a taxi and hawking office supplies to UCLA department heads and professors. Even on scorching hot days, he could be seen in his worn-out, three-piece, brown suit, scuttling across campus. One of his professors joked in a casually racist way that he looked like your gardener on his way to church. When not delivering sales pitches, Castaneda was spending his time toiling away in the library in Haynes Hall, where he was working on a secretive manuscript made up of diary entries from his fieldwork. He had a stall in the library where he was writing a book. Classmate Angelo Aronia, a friend of Castaneda's who was working in the library at the time. He was just there very methodically. He said he worked well in the morning. That's when he did his writing. Then in the afternoon, he would do other things. So uh, Carlos is there, but he would never, at least he then shared with me, what he was writing about. Few of Castaneda's UCLA colleagues knew about his project. Friend and classmate Carol McLean. I would have been shocked to learn that he was writing a book. I would have been completely shocked. Writing a full-length book for a master's thesis was an almost unheard-of undertaking, but it did offer a potential shortcut route for Castaneda to obtain a professorship, Angelo Aronia. Of course, we wanted to become an anthropologist, and there were two ways to do it. One was to get a PhD, and the other one was to write a book, because as we uh, studied anthropology, we discovered that there were some prominent names of anthropologists who only had MAs. So Larry and I, we were getting ourselves ready for the PhD, but Carlos didn't mention anything that he was doing qualifications for the PhD, taking exams or anything. The fact that Castaneda was attempting to go down a route with little chance of success did not mean he was supremely confident in the merit of his manuscript. In moments of doubt, he admitted to friends that he even considered destroying it. When he finally reached a point where he felt feedback would be beneficial, he began sharing it with a few friends at UCLA. Classmate Larry Watson. 
One fine day, we met on campus, and he had this package under his arm. He'd been telling me that he was working on this project, and he'd uh, had this manuscript pretty much written. And I said, what do you got there? Is this the big deal, the big taco? And he was very serious, very tense. And he said, yeah, he said, this is, this is it. This is my taco, or something to that effect. So he said, oh, I really need you to tell me what you really think to critique this. Tell me honestly. There was kind of a nervousness, anxiety in his voice. And I said, yeah, sure I will. I'd be very happy to. I, I've been looking forward to this, as a matter of fact. He said, you think you could have it read by tomorrow? And I said, well, I don't know. It's a book. But I'm sure I'll give it my best shot. That night, I must have stayed up till maybe 1, one thirty, which was not typical for me. I didn't like to keep late hours, but I couldn't stop reading it. And I was just so mesmerized by the book. I thought it was really super fantastic, totally different. It had kind of this rawness about it, but this tremendous power. When I met him the next day in the afternoon, he was very anxious. He said, well, did you read it? And I said, yes, I did. It's wonderful. It's a masterful book. I had no idea you could write this well. I had no idea you had these literary capabilities in you. I praised it to the skies. I said, this is absolutely marvelous. He said, so you really think it's good? I said, it isn't just good. It's great. When Castaneda shared the manuscript with his former professor, Clement Meehan, Meehan instantly saw the manuscript's potential to be a big hit with the burgeoning youth drug culture. Meehan marched Castaneda over to the office of the University of California Press. There, the manuscript was eventually accepted for publication, in no small part due to the enthusiastic urgings of Meehan and Castaneda's mentor, Professor Harold Garfinkel. In June of 1967, Castaneda was offered a contract. He signed it, and with the advance, went downtown to buy a new three-piece gray Brooks Brothers suit. He called me and told me that they'd accepted it at UC Press, and it was going to come out in spring of 68. And I was very happy for him. I was teaching at the time down in San Diego, so but I'd still come up to LA quite often. And he said, what are you coming up next time? And I want to give you my book. I want you to hold it in your hands. And I said, of course I want to see it. I hope it looks really good. And he says, yeah, it's kind of drab looking. To promote the book, UC Press arranged for Castaneda to go on a speaking tour of college town bookstores up along the coast of California. The tour got off to a bumpy start. Stuart Brand, founder of the Whole Earth Catalog. Whole Earth Catalog at that point was being run out of Menlo Park. And just up the street was a bookstore named Kepler's. I was in there one day when uh, Carlos was actually doing a book tour. And he was, uh, I think, a little uncomfortable, shy. He had basically zero audience. (laughs) So it was one of those embarrassing book tour events like I've done many a time. As the tour went on, Castaneda grew more and more comfortable with public speaking. And word of mouth about the book began to spread with lightning speed. And then the book just took off. Former marketing director at UC Press, Harlan Kessel. He'd come into the bookshop, and the place would be filled with people. Sam's shop would be just packed. I have here today Carlos Castaneda, the author of Teachings of Don Juan. I'm assuming that most of you have read the book. You all look like you have. (laughs) So uh, I think I'll just turn it over to Carlos and uh, let it go from there. 
Carla? Okay. Maybe you like to ask me something that you want to know. What country are you from? I'm from Brazil. I was born in Brazil. My grandparents are Italian. He was about that When I went to do my field work, I parted from the point of view that I was the anthropologist doing the field work with the Indians, you know, that type of thing. I was the one who knew most everything. And, uh, they didn't. But, of course, it was a great culture shock to find out that I didn't know anything. He was just, oh my God, I mean, he just connect so beautifully with the audience just pick up any thread that somebody would come at him at and chat, chat the whole night away. Went on endlessly. Soon after its release, the teachings of Don Juan became a West Coast cultural phenomenon. How it became a national and then international phenomenon is a story that begins with a young star editor at Simon & Schuster and a business trip he took out to Los Angeles in 1968. Michael Corda. I popped into a bookstore to ask what was selling and to hear the various complaints that booksellers always have about publishers. And the only thing that was really selling was a bound University of California thesis, which he couldn't keep in stock. He said, we can't get enough of them. So I asked if he had one. He didn't have one to sell, but he lent me his, and I took it back to the tell last night, and I read it. And I thought it was absolutely terrific. His relationship with Don Juan was really very interesting. It's like a father-son relationship. It's like a teacher-mentor relationship. There were so many levels to it. Um, and I noticed that Ned Brown was credited as the agent for the book. So I rang him the next day. I asked whether we could have a chance of getting a book by Carlos Castaneda. And he said, well, maybe he said, but actually he thought that Carlos's thesis would also make a trade book and one that probably could be published to a much larger audience than a university press audience. And I said, well, that sounded all right with me. And I said, I'd like, like to meet Carlos Castaneda. And Ned Brown said, it might be a little complicated. It might be a little difficult. Carlos was not good about meeting people necessarily. I said, you know, if I'm buying the book, I'd like to meet him since I'm here. And he said, fine, I should wait outside the Beverly Hills Hotel. And he'd come by for me. And I said, well, how will I recognize him? And he said, don't worry, he'll recognize you. And so, indeed, that evening, I stood outside the Beverly Hills Hotel under the kind of portico in front of the hotel, and Carlos Castaneda emerged and instantly recognized me and took me off in his car, and we had dinner. The whole mysterious quality of Carlos Castaneda had not yet fully developed, but was already in the process of developing. The real Carlos Castaneda was intensely normal, <laughs> cheerful, and, and good company. And he was a very enjoyable person to have dinner with. We got along very well. But he made it clear that his book was not necessarily anthropology. And that if I was thinking of it as a work of anthropology, I was only partly right. In short, that it was a work of anthropology, but it was also a work about a lot of other things. And I thought about what he said, and I read the book again, and I realized that of course, he was right. You could package that book as anthropology. And I suppose in my mind, that's what I was sort of intending to do. But in fact, it was a book about a whole lot of things other than anthropology. 
It's really about a whole attitude of life. It's about psychotropic drugs, and it's about how those drugs open up a whole other separate reality and universe to people. When the teachings of Don Juan was released by Simon & Schuster, sales weren't just strong. It just took off. The book simply took off and sold an enormous number of copies. It was the right time and the right subject. Castaneda had been right. Teachings was received as far more than just a work of anthropology. It became an instant spiritual classic, a book of wisdom to awaken a rising generation from its spiritual slumbers. Stuart Brand. We were all blown away by it. My friend Gregory Bateson was knocked out by it. We thought it was compelling, and some of the mystical, magical stuff was particularly compelling. I believe he really tapped into something. Path of the Heart was something that uh, one was able to refer to with people, and it meant something. That core of a, of a person or personality picks up a, a narrative track in the world. It's built on interesting adventures, and it can lead to interesting adventures. A path with heart was a phrase from what became the most quoted passage from the teachings of Don Juan, a passage that itself was the very heart of the story. In the memorable monologue, Don Juan tells Castaneda that when deciding on what course to take in one's life, one must ask oneself the following question. Does this path have a heart? Don Juan goes on to say, quote, All paths are the same. They lead nowhere. They are paths going through the bush or into the bush. In my own life, I could say that I have traversed long, long paths, but I am not anywhere. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it's of no use. Both paths lead nowhere, but one has a heart, the other doesn't. One makes for a joyful journey. As long as you follow it, you are one with it. The other will make you curse your life. One makes you strong, the other weakens you. A path with heart was a blank for readers to fill in for themselves and thus turn the very heart of teachings into the reader's own. There's a whole bunch of books that seem to be in this kind of genre. Herman Hesse's books are like that, especially Siddhartha. Persig's books are like this, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Myla. University of Toronto professor John Bervecki. And so I think that they can become sacred text. I don't mean that you take it as an absolute authority, that you take some sort of fundamentalist literalism attitude towards it. The text is sacred to me because I can return to it again and again and again as I live my life. They're providing a continual source of transformative insights so that our fundamental way of understanding ourselves and our world and identifying with ourselves and our world is constantly being transformed in a way that we trust because it has put us on a path of development that continues to unfold in an adaptive way for us. Castaneda was, uh, to me, a religious, a spiritual advisor, very much so. Oliver Stone. The beauty of his writing, and he was a good writer, is that he was able to excite your mystery, excite the sense of not knowing. Uh, he called it Nawal, you know, the concept of not knowing, which is the darker side, of the, the side that's unknown. And I think... We all have to acknowledge that as artists, certainly, and as dramatists, filmmakers, whatever. It's the way of life. He used the word warrior, a warrior of knowledge. You needed to be disciplined. You needed to be strong. As a soldier, you have to understand, I, I felt the need for that. It wasn't some fluffy hippie trip. I'm not putting that down, but it, it, it had a strength to it. In combat, there are no niceties. A dead enemy soldier is simply an object to be examined for documents, then removed as quickly as possible, sometimes crudely. 
No one says a prayer here or holds a funeral service. These had been living, breathing men yesterday. Today, they are just a sanitation problem. There were so many ugly, disjointed things going on in the country. This is Maria Rana, Washington Post book critic and distant relative of Carlos Castaneda. And I remember arriving from Lima, Peru during the 60s, right when they were hosing the blacks in the South. And, and then, of course, the assassinations came one right after another. And the Vietnam War, all of these things were hallucinatory, absolutely hallucinatory for the young, for the people of my generation at the time. And the teachings of Don Juan were absolute nectar to those of us in the generation who were actually seeking some kind of sanity, or if not sanity, then something to remove us from the very real insanity that was going on all around us. Oliver Harris, professor of American literature at Keele University. One of the things you notice reading the teachings of Don Juan is that the rest of the world just disappears. I mean, that there's a diary entry at one point for sort of November 1963. You'd never think the president of the United States had just been assassinated. It's just come, it's gone. So uh, it's very strange how it exists in a kind of timeless, spaceless uh, vacuum. But of course, the reader can, can fill in the gaps and realize this is where the rest of the world does kind of fade into the background. And now suddenly what matters is the peyote plant. <laughs> Uh, suddenly a different reality has taken over and the major political historical events of our time, they just seem like so much show business, so much um, palaver and blather and nonsense. It's, it's strange. It's a very curious effect of reading his work. With the success of the teachings of Don Juan, Castaneda suddenly found himself to have realized the American dream, or at least the version of it made out of newfound fame and fortune. From struggling to make ends meet and sleeping on a floor mattress, he was now on his way to being minted a millionaire with a Malibu beach house to prove it. His next two books in the Don Juan series, A Separate Reality and Journey to Isalan, would go on to become New York Times bestsellers. Michael Corda. They were enormously successful, a sizable chunk of Simon and Schuster business. The world Castaneda had created with his books was seeping into the cultural mainstream. Hollywood was knocking with offers, and rock and roll musicians like James Taylor were writing songs filled with Castaneda references. Parodies of Castaneda's works by Calvin Tompkins and Donald Bartholme popped up in The New Yorker and The New York Times. And for the publication of the Mexican edition of Teachings, future Nobel Prize-winning novelist Octavio Paz agreed to write the introduction, and surrealist artist Leonora Carrington signed on to design the book's cover art. Rather than publicly bask in the popular acclaim, Castaneda remained elusive from the limelight searching for him. Michael Corda. He had a very strong ability to appear, get more publicity, and then just simply vanish. He was very skilled at that. I don't mean that it was an act. It was sincere, but it was also carefully thought out. He knew how to protect his privacy, and he knew how to make himself mysterious when he wanted to be mysterious. Castaneda's tendency to suddenly vanish didn't mean that he was turning into a strict recluse. From time to time, he would appear at house parties in the Hollywood Hills, flanked by women, including Marianne Simcoe, and a small, energetic blonde woman named Regine Thao, the second of the missing women, who, like Marianne, also met Castaneda at UCLA. The fact that nobody knew what exactly Castaneda looked like allowed him to enjoy some of the perks of celebrityhood. It also allowed others to enjoy them, 
there were false Carlos Castaneda's wandering around. Ruby-robed imposters claiming to be Castaneda had begun springing up at literary events in New York and San Francisco. At one such party in Sausalito, Carlos Castaneda even claimed to have met Carlos Castaneda. He was tall, barefoot, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, and had the chisel good looks of a movie star. The real Castaneda later quipped that he was a much better Castaneda than he could ever be. Anyone looking to find the real Castaneda was in for a challenge, but there was one way you could be sure you were interacting with him, and that was to send a letter to a student post office box at UCLA. And that's just what one reader of the teachings did. In the letter, after praising Castaneda's writing, the reader informed Castaneda that he had noticed something odd about Don Juan's practices with psychedelic mushrooms, something that he was hoping Castaneda might be able to provide clarification about. In teachings, Don Juan had consumed the psilocybin mushrooms by smoking them in a dried, powdered form. This was something that the reader had never heard of or read about or witnessed shamans doing. And there was a good reason for this. The powdered form of the psychedelic mushrooms Castaneda mentioned were almost impossible to ignite. The name of the reader who sent Castaneda that letter was R. Gordon Wasson, the mushroom expert who appeared in Dr. Buhark's The Sacred Mushroom, the book that had captured Castaneda's imagination and had spurred him on a course towards anthropology. R. Gordon Wasson would later confess to his friend, the anthropologist Peter First, that his real reason for writing to Castaneda was left unstated in his letter. He told First that he had smelled a hoax. In the next chapter of our story, We'll follow a Time Magazine investigation that attempts to pull back the curtain on some of the mysteries surrounding Castaneda's personal history and go back in time to discover who Castaneda was before his arrival at UCLA.